Uh, last time, uh, we had an introduction to the book of First Chronicles, which really answers, uh, in my opinion, one vital question for the returning exiles, which is the group we're with at the end of the book. Therefore, that's when it was written um, in the 500s, shortly after the exiles returned. And the question that all of the book appears to answer is, are we still God's people? That question is vital throughout the book of First and Second Chronicles. Um, so, as the very in, in these genealogies, for example, in the beginning of the book, and this is the second half of those uh, today. There will be no more after today, Harry. Um, uh, after, after, as these genealogies uh, roll, scroll past us like pages of a phone book. We're asking the question, what are these genealogies here for? Well, these are God's people being told, this is where you came from, this is where you are now, and therefore are we still God's people? Where have we gone, where are we, and, and so forth. So today, uh, we're going from Egypt all the way to King Saul, and we're not going to do it once, we're going to do it about five times. So Egypt to Saul, Egypt to Saul, Egypt to Saul, and so forth um, in, in different ways. And the reason we're focusing on Saul is, well, who was King Saul? The first king of all of Israel. Yeah. And we're not going to focus actually on Saul's reign as king. Saul reigned longer than any other king of Israel. Uh, Solomon, 40 years, David, 40 years, Saul, evidently 42 years. So he reigned longer than either of the other two long-reigning kings of Israel or Judah. Um, and, uh, and yet we're only going to focus next week on his death. So it's the transition from Saul to David that the book is really interested in. Because with David, the line of the Savior is the line of the kings. That's not true with Saul. So that's where we're headed today. So let's get into this, beginning simply with chapter 5. It's where we are. And we've been talking about various tribes of Israel and where did they come from, what happened to them, and so forth over the years. And in chapter 5, we're going to be concerned with Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, which I'm going to call the Transjordan tribes. If I talk about the Trans-Mississippi what backward place am I referring to here in Minnesota? Trans means across the. So, what's the trans-Mississippi? Wisconsin, yeah. I know it's my home, but still, that's that place. That's the trans-Mississippi. So the trans-Jordan is that area of Israel that was not on the... Jerusalem side of the Jordan River. It's across the river. So here, if you can see the map fairly well, um, those three tribes on the right of that slide, can you read them fairly well? The top one is Eastern Manasseh. Then we have the tribe of Gad. And in the south, we have the tribe of Reuben. Um, what's the name of the lake that Reuben is butted up against? The Dead Sea. In the New Testament, it was there in southern Reuben, 
um, if you can, um, the, the, the four rivers that feed on the right side of the Jordan are the Yarmuk, the Jabbok, the Arnon, and the Zered. And this is the Arnon River that forms the southern border of Reuben. And that's just about where bad King Herod built a fortress, and that's where John the Baptist met his end. Okay, so that was over there across the, not only across the Jordan, but across the Dead Sea. Um, nice re resort place, actually. Um, beautiful countryside, and they got some rain and so forth. So that's these three tribes uh, that we're talking about. Eastern Manasseh up in the north. Um, if you recognize that it was often referred to that countryside as Bashan, or um, in between Manasseh and Gad, you had a hill country that was often referred to as Gilead. Remember, there is a balm in Gilead. That's that region, which is why that's a funny border between Manasseh and Gad because of the shape of, of that hill country over there. Okay, so we're starting off with Reuben, and I am not going to read every verse of every chapter. I did last week, and our heads were, I think my head is still spinning, um, this week, I'm only going to read some relevant verses from each chapter, and actually not very many. But the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. So Reuben defiled his father's marriage bed. What, what does that mean? He slept with who in particular? You don't have to know her name if you can tell me kind of what she, who or what she was. Was she his mother? No. Who are the two wives of Jacob? Rachel and Leah. Leah the first wife is the mother of Reuben and the, most of the, half, half the boys, actually. Then uh, you have Leah had a concubine named, I believe, uh, Zilpah. Rachel had a concubine named Bilhah. Now, by the time Rachel, or, or rather Leah, had been having children, and then we had a concubine involved because I'm not having enough boys and so forth. And then finally, Rachel gives away her concubine for dad to, to conceive. A, 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 you know, and then, and then they, now all of a sudden there are four wives. Reuben, the eldest uh, son, is the son of Leah, but he sleeps with Bilhah, who is the other wife's servant girl. So she's not connected to his household at all. If you, if you, if you follow me, she's four-tenths down. Okay? She is not part of Leah's family or, or servant girl in any way. She is part of that other, she is that other wife's other servant girl. But they're probably close to the same age. So that's, that's where we are going there. That's, that's how that takes place. Well, uh, Jacob then pulls away the, the rights of the firstborn away from Reuben. By the way, 
Besides Reuben, also Simeon and Levi don't get their firstborn rights either. And they were second and third. Why don't they get the rights of the firstborn? The Shechemites. There's a story I, I called Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah. That's the name of the sister. And uh, the, the, the kid's name who was in love with Dinah is Shechem. Um, he sleeps with her. He rapes her, actually. Then he tells her he loves her, wants to marry her, and the boys don't like it. He's not one of them. He's not an Israelite in any way, and he's not a believer, and he, they insist that he gets circumcised. And then they say, oh, by the way, your whole family has to get circumcised. So they do that. And how does the Genesis put it? Moses says, while they were still in their pain, then Reub, or, or, uh, Simeon and Levi come with their knives or swords or whatever and kill them all. Um, and so they're out too. Now, Judah wasn't exactly the world's greatest son either. But one aspect of the, of the, of the firstborn goes to Judah not the double portion, but something else. It's the line of the Savior. Yeah. In fact, we're told here in Chronicles that from Jacob's point of view, it was Joseph who got the double portion of the firstborn because Joseph got divided into Ephraim and Manasseh. So they, they get a double portion, literally. So though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and as a ruler and a ruler came from Judah, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. And the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. I'm going to jump down to verse 6. And Beirah, his son, whom Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, took into exile. So we've jumped now all the way to 722. From the days of Jacob in 1900 B.C., or 1850 B.C. or whatever it was, all the way to 722 Tiglath-Pileser going into taking the, the, um, the tribe into exile. Beira was the leader of the Reubenites at that time. This is Tiglath-Pileser. Oh, I forgot it again. Um, on my door in my office, I have a carving of this individual, Tiglath-Pileser III. I made it out of styrofoam, but it's this picture of uh, uh, 3D, it's called a boss relief, of uh, Tiglath-Pileser. I, I find his hair and beard fascinating. Um, is, uh, obviously, this is an attempt at fairly realistic carving, but there are some things they don't really do well. Hands are difficult to get right, although evidently the muscles of the wrist, and is he wearing a watch? Anyway, uh, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but his hair, is it, is it simply that he had curly hair? Or, or what's going on there? I, I really don't know, or braided, or pleated, or something. I don't exactly know. Um, but that's Tiglath-Pileser. He, he reigned uh, from 745 to 727. It was actually his successor who took the Jews into exile. Um, or not the Jews, but the Israelites in the north. He's often called Pull in the Bible. And keep an eye on him. Sometimes that picture blinks. So, um, uh, To the east, this is still Reuben, they occupied the land up to the edge of the desert that extends to the Euphrates because their livestock had increased in Gilead. So they, across the desert, the Arabian desert. Um, during Saul's reign, they waged war against the Hagrites who were defeated at their hands, they occupied the dwellings of the Hagrites 
throughout the entire region east of Gilead. Now the Hagrites, we don't know much about them, but I think that they are named for Hagar, um, Abraham's concubine, um, uh, because of the connection to Ishmael. Um, they're only mentioned in this chapter, in a later chapter of First Chronicles, and in Psalm 83, where they're part of the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, and that would make sense. That Ishmael may have, you know, normally Ishmael would have maybe named his clan after himself, but instead, he, because of the way mom got treated, maybe he names it after mom. They become the Hagrites. We saw last time that there are women, in, especially in Edom, who were clan chiefs. Would you call them a princess or whatever, or a queen? Um, but they, they, they are, was it uh, Tibni and, and some others? Um, not, not Tibni, but um, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, let's go on with the next tribe, which is Gad in the middle um, the land that had once been called Ammon, the Gadites took over. The Gadites lived in Gilead, uh, in Bashan and its outlying villages, and in all the pasture lands of Sharon, as far as they extended. There are two Sharons. The other Sharon is over on the coast, south of Mount Carmel. It's known for its thorns, and what kind of flowers have thorns? Roses. I am a rose of Sharon. Is that Song of Solomon? And um, uh, however, this Sharon was not all thorny and grown over with prickers and stuff. This was good pasture land, and it was over on the other side. Um, so all these were entered into the genealogical records during the reigns of Jotham, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. That would be Jeroboam the second, not Jeroboam the first. Um, so our, our chronicler, I think it was Ezra, but I don't know, um, is telling us where he got some of this information. And he's going to tip his hand in the next verse that he didn't just get his information from the book of Kings, but he actually went all the way back to Numbers for some of this. And he's consistent with that at least because for his totals, he seems to dip back to Moses' original census of the fighting men in the book of, in, in Numbers. Um, so, uh, so the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 men ready for military service. That's not every year of their existence, but that was when they entered into the promised land. Able-bodied men who could handle shield and sword, who could use a bow, and who were trained for battle. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jetur, Naphish, and Nodab. And shield and sword and bow, the Israelites fought on foot. Um, we should remember that. Uh, I was watching um, uh, um, a pseudo-historical movie a couple nights ago. Um, I didn't even get all the way through it. Um, sometimes I get mad about details and throw up my hands and turn it off and, but um, they, they were proposing that, uh, I think it's, the, the movie is called, uh, I forgot if it was, it's either the movie 10,000 BC or the movie Iceman, I forget which one. It's one of the, I was watching both of those last week. Um, forgive me if you don't like my taste in historical films. But in both of them, they have guys riding around on horseback. You know, and guys riding around on horseback, fighting on horseback, did not happen in ancient times. Um, in the Old Testament, 
you began to have um, men fighting on horseback um, in, 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 the, in the late Babylonian period um, that uh, perhaps uh, Cyrus the Great, that his guys had perfected that, the, the, the um, kingdom of Anshan in the 500s BC, but not in 1000 BC or any of that. So, um, no, they fought on foot. Um, pretty, they sometimes would ride a chariot, especially uh, to get from A to B. Um, in Egypt, it seems like sometimes the more experienced fighters would ride light chariots and they would have a driver and then the soldier or the king would have arrows or spears. Um, but that didn't always turn out so well. You all have heard of King Tut. Um, it, they have done autopsies of Tut and of the things they found in his tomb. And do you know how King Tut died? <laughs> he appears to have been run over by his own chariot in the middle of a battle. Um, the chariot is his. They, 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 it's, it's there in the tomb. And it's kind of broken in the correct way. He has wounds going up in a line, up one leg and up one side of his body that are consistent with a chariot wheel. Um, as if he had fallen out of this thing, had stood up while his driver was circling around to get him, and he turned around and boom, over it went, and that, that's what did him in. Um, but uh, something along those lines. But uh, Okay, enough of that. Um, they were helped in fighting them, and God, God delivered the Hagrites and all their allies into their hands. That is, the Hagrites lost. Um, because they cried out to him during the battle, he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. Is that a good statement? It's a wonderful statement. Good for the Gadites. They seized the livestock of the Hagrites, and check this out, 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep. That's a quarter of a million sheep. Um, and 2,000 donkeys. Those are huge numbers of, of critters. Um, uh, taken here. They also took 100,000 people captive. Many others fell slain because the battle was God's and they occupied the land until the exile. Those 100,000 people, some of them had been raising those sheep. Can you imagine losing a war, being taken by your captor and told, oh, I want you to look after these sheep and you look down and these are my sheep? You know, but oh, oh all right, well, I'm working for him now. So and, um, not all of them did that, though, of the 100,000. I kind of wonder how many got sold for cash. You know, the, you, you, when you take a prisoner, one of, the, one of the problems of having prisoners is you've got to feed them, right? So you, you can't always afford to do that, so you might actually sell some of them. But the, the great gem here in verse 22 is the battle was God's. So for the people of Gad, are we still God's people? You know, wonderful stuff here. Half-tribe of Manasseh, eastern half. People of the half-tribe of Manasseh were numerous. Um, they settled in the land from Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is to Sinir, Mount Hermon. That's way up north. If you ever are taking a Bible trivia quiz and they ask you, was there snow in Israel when Jesus was born? What's the answer? Um, any of you ever been to Seattle? Have you seen Mount Rainier? There's always snow on Mount Rainier. Always snow on Mount Hermon also. So it's the northernmost really piece of Israel and always. So yeah, there was snow in Israel 
when Jesus was born. Probably not gently falling at the feet of the shepherds um, in Bethlehem, but there was snow somewhere in Israel when Jesus was born. These were the heads of their family, of their family. This is the half-tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim, Ishi, Eliel, Azrael, Jeremiah, not the prophet, Hodaviah and, uh, and Yadiel. They were brave warriors, famous men, heads of their families, but they were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors and prostituted themselves to the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. With the Lord, idolatry is the equivalent in a marriage to adultery. They may as well be the same thing to God. So God, the God of Israel, stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to Hela, Habor, Hera, and the river of Gozan, where they are to this day. That phrase, to this day, is what day for the author? When he was writing, yeah. So they're still there. Uh, our, our chronicler, probably Ezra, is saying in the 500s, they're still there. Now we might ask, where are Hela, Habor, and Hera? You might have a Bible uh, 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 atlas at home or a map at home and the author or the or the um, what would you say the um, publisher may have had somebody who uh, uh, a cartographer is what I meant uh, may have been eager to put a dot for every name on his list but we don't know where these three dots go okay even if you have a map at home that tells you where they are we don't really know where these three are what we do know is the river of Gozan so that one we do know. Uh, it goes, uh, it flows uh, uh, through Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that's, that's that river. So that's where some of those exiles from way over, can you see how far away uh, Judah, or, or rather uh, uh, Bashan and so forth uh, were across? That's, that's many, many hundreds of miles across desert. Um, and still there, that our chronicler says. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.